جود ارتنون رحب فيكم جميعا مؤسسة دراسات الفلسطينية Our talk will be in English and it's a great pleasure to have Professor Roberto Mazza who is here from two places University of Limerick in Ireland and more recently from University of Northwestern in Chicago, uh, which has a great opera school, by the way. Did you uh, discover it? I know where it is, but no, I didn't. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, Roberto has been, is an old timer. He's been with us for many years on the, first as a contributor and now as a member of the editorial board of the Jerusalem Quarterly. Uh, he has written a large number of uh, studies, uh, most notably uh, Jerusalem from the Ottomans to the British, uh, and Jerusalem in World War I, the Palestinian diary of a European consul. He's also um, has uh, essays coming out of new books between Rome and Jerusalem, Catholic Negotiating Empires and War in Palestine, 1850-1930, which is coming out, or maybe has come out already. No, it's, I think it's out, yeah. It was a coming, chapter, uh, yeah, definitely. In Rutledge, 2019. And uh, safeguarding the amenities of the holy city without favor or prejudice, which is an essay on the work of the pro-Jerusalem society and Charles Ashby, yeah. right? Well, yeah. Yeah, and a very interesting essay which uh, I attended in Istanbul. Um, was it Ushkudar or Istanbul? Uh, no, Sheikh. Uh, yeah, no, no, it was that Ushkudar. Yeah, Ushkudar. Ushkudar yes, to yeah. be precise. We will treat you like the Armenians. Jamal Basha, Zionism, and the evacuation of Jaffa in April 1917. A very interesting study, which challenges a lot of uh, Zionist historiography on this subject of the, the transfer and uh, um, uh, of, the, of the Jewish and non-Jewish communities, communities yeah. from Jaffa. Uh, the current talk has a very intriguing title, The Deal of the Century, the Attempted Sale of the Western Wall by Jamal Basha in 1916. Yeah. Is this? I notice you have changed the title in your. No, no, that's no, fine. This is it. Okay, that's it. So, without further ado, thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It was a nice, you know, nice and smooth trip from coming through all of the various places. It's warm, so when I left Chicago, it was like in the minus, and ah, I'm in a shirt. Uh, the deal of a century. Now we, we, I guess we all got used to uh, Jared Kushner coming around and. Uh, proposing a deal of a century, which, well, obviously is not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but I want to make a point. Jamal Pasha in 1916 was probably going to make a deal, and that would have been really the, the deal of a century. Uh, and it didn't happen. And so before I start going into the topic, let me say a couple of things. I tried to publish this in a, a number of journals. Uh, it's now going to be published, but it took me quite some time, because every time I got very good comments, but first of all, I'm going to make a few comments about what if, 
what if that happens? So history with if is complicated, right? Uh, but I think it's an important question to ask. Another sort of criticism which prevented to be published because then finally the editors were not happy was again a massive challenge, uh, not necessarily against um, the Zionist version of history, but more importantly against the labor, the Mapai version of history, which is about uh, uh, redemption rather than purchase, uh, which I'm going to make a point here. So I ran into some troubles, but I, uh, I'm insisting on it. Uh, one of the worst comments I had was that uh, uh, I was involved in some conspiracy theory, uh, which I don't think so, and I tried to prove it today. So, November 17, 1915, Arthur Rupin, head of a Zionist office in Jaffa, wrote to Richard Licktime, who was the uh, major representative of a Zionist uh, executive in Istanbul, saying that. Well, Jamal Pasha, the governor of Syria during World War I, was in fact interested in selling the area in front of the Western Wall. Quoting, in order to dismantle the nearly 30 houses owned by Moroccans and create space reserved for the prayers of the Jewish people, and the rest could be turned into a public garden. Now, since the mid-19th century, we know that wealthy European Jews, and I'm going to mention this few later, tried to purchase the area, but uh, the Ottomans were obviously um, you know, not interested in this kind of business. And there were a number of reasons for the denials. Uh, for the most part, because that was a waqf, and now to a, an Islamic charity, uh, and therefore not possible to, uh, to sell. Um, during, with the establishment of the British Mandate, uh, many Jews, I mean, obviously the Zionists, were eager to attempt once again to buy it, but obviously the British immediately understood that it would have run uh, uh, into some problems with the local uh, Palestinian population, so different reasons. So it never really happened. Uh, if we take also the incidents of 1929, obviously we know that after the uh, uh, you know, the Western Wall uh, incidents or massacres, I prefer to call them, well, obviously, that would have been impossible. And we know that for a fact what happened, we have to wait 1967 to see exactly the same project, the blueprint that was established by Jamal Pasha, but taking place in a very different way. It took only a few days from the Israeli to obviously conquer East Jerusalem and eventually to demolish the Maghrebi quarter. One point I will make later. There is no difference between what happens, but the difference is the context. One was a sale during wartime, obviously the other one is a military occupation of East Jerusalem and the, uh, the demolishing by the new occupiers of the city, or of the same area, with the purpose to build exactly what happened next. Now, uh, I'm arguing that this is a completely new uh, sort of a case study, and I can tell you for a fact that uh, there are only four works that in different ways looked at the material. One was Martin Gilbert in his famous book on uh, Jerusalem in the 20th century, but I don't know how he managed to mess up the, the information, maybe because he didn't want to report it in the way it was written in the documents. And then we have a French work by Elisabeth Antebi, the granddaughter of Albert Antebi, who actually is the main character in the story. But her book is uh, unknown, and you know she doesn't she, there are no footnotes, basically, so she doesn't say where she got the material. Uh, the material is the same one, uh, the, the same material I access, but still, you know, uh, certainly didn't make it through. 
1972, very interestingly, an Israeli uh, journalist, Shoshana Levy, wrote an article on Aretz in Hebrew, Jamal Pasha sold the Western world to Albert Antebi, that's the title. Uh, and she used the material I was able to see. Now, remarkably, the article received little or no attention, and obviously, it's the pre-social media period, there's no comment section. So we don't know how many people read the article, we don't know if anybody read the article. My speculation is that five years after 1967, there was no appetite for any discussions around the Western Wall. It was taken, it was demolished, she wrote the article and probably disappeared very quickly. In recent time, and I know for a fact why that happened, an Israeli historian working in a small college, uh, and I have the article with me actually, wrote a five pages article essay uh, reporting just the documents. It's in Hebrew, it's not really popular, uh, and I know that he attended uh, uh, a talk where I was talking about it. So I'm not saying that he plagiarized or stole, but you know, once you talk about something, obviously the archives are over there. What I want to talk about today is basically four things. The context, a little bit uh, mentioning the Western War, the correspondence, uh, issues about secrecy and failure, and why, and again this is the speculation part, why was not discussed afterwards. Now we know that the Western War was eventually captured by the Israeli in 1967, and the Maghrebi Quarter uh, eventually was uh, you know, demolished. Now, I don't want to suggest that Jamal Pasha offer justifies those events. That's not the point, obviously. Um, even because Jamal Pasha knew uh, that removing the Moroccan houses could have created discontent among the local residents, uh, obviously, particularly among the Muslims. But we need to understand the context and, and understand that the, this was uh, 1916, uh, probably, you know, uh, somehow the beginning of the, of the changing fate for the Ottoman uh, forces where they began to realize we were going to lose the war, things were not, you know, other than Gallipoli that turned out to be successful in uh, Kutelamara. So, you know, we have to think about Jamal Pasha was in trouble. And perhaps, you know, selling the war to him was not such a controversial issue after all. What is interesting, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, that the end result would have been the same, 1916, 1967. Uh, particularly when we look at the details of the offer made. So, again, as I said earlier, I want to try to tackle a few questions about what if. What would have been the implication if the offer would have turned into reality? What would have happened? We don't know. But we know that for a fact that the wall could have been bought by the, by the Zionists and it turned into a praying area. What would have been the reaction of the local Palestinians? What would have been the reaction of the Jews around the world? What about the, uh, uh, the war, um, the allies winning the war afterwards? Obviously, we don't know. History with it is daunting, and obviously, we can't change the past. So, some argue that, and again, this is picked up from some of the comments, well, it's irrelevant. Well, no, it's not irrelevant at all. Because, as I said, it's neglect. I believe it's not an accident but it's a removal from a specific historiography. One, Salim, you know, years ago wrote an amazing article about uh, rediscovering Ottoman Palestine, and I think also on the Palestinian side, you know, you want to talk about these things, you know, it didn't happen, but more importantly, from the Zionist perspective, you know, this is an issue of a purchase, which failed, and redemption, 1967, conquering the place that was so much desired. So I think there are some narratives here that we, we have to deal with. 
Uh, can I ask you to thank you? Perfect. So here we have you know, a picture taken from the same corner, more or less, with the Western World Plaza, and of course, uh, pre-1967, a picture with the Moroccan houses. Now, I'm not expert in religions, and what I'm going to talk about here can be easily questioned, but you know, in order to write about this, I had to study a little more. <coughs> so when we talk about the Akhotel Amaravi or Al-Makba, or you know, the Wailing Wall, we tend to think about this universal recognized symbol and place for the Jews. Certainly, after 1929, the Western Wall had become part of the national struggle between the Zionists and the Palestinians. But prior to that event, uh, this place was mainly a reminder of a diaspora rather than a national symbol. And to that extent, there are two amazing works written by Hillel Cohen and uh, Rana Barakat, a PhD. Really, we're talking about how this was transformed into something different. Uh, what I found interesting is the official history of the Western Wall, which was commissioned by the Israeli Minister of Defense, suggesting that as early as the fourth century, some sources would report Jew Jews visiting the Western Wall at least once a year. Now, the, the, the same book then goes into that, well, actually, it's only from the 19th century. So we have different narratives. And one thing that we know for a fact is that certainly there were Jewish pilgrims and travelers throughout uh, the Middle Ages coming, visiting. But they would go often actually on Mount of Olives, where the cemetery is based, and look over upon the city from that point. But it's only from the 19th century that we have a more consistent number of Jews traveling and praying at the Western Wall, which also tells us that the sacred geography of Jerusalem is a con constantly changes and the understanding of other places. But it's also linked to, uh, to the fact that, you know, by the beginning of the 19th century, with the rediscovery of the Holy Land by European travelers, we have internal changes within the Jewish community to see the war as, a, and I'm going to mention that several times, as a year of memoir, a place of memory. It's the, the only remaining place of what was, you know, a Jewish Jerusalem. So the, the major shift is that the world changed from a spiritual symbol uh, but to a, a visible one, a tangible one, something that the Zionists understood could be redeemed, maybe purchased, but made part of, a, of, of you know, of, of, of sort of a Zionist imagination. But I'm going to mention later that not necessarily all of the Zionists believed in this. So, you know, there's also different views uh, upon um, the, the meaning of, uh, of the war. In fact, to many Jews around the beginning of the 20th century, the war was a symbol of destruction and degradation, a side that would remember the suffering of the Jews in contrast with the development of modern societies through the 19th century. And that's an important element in my discussion of historiography. Now, plenty of sources show the expansion of the war as a Jewish praying site and increasing amount of requests by local and foreign Jews to better access the area. For instance, in 1840, Jews asked to pave the area in front of the wall, the tiny wall that is basically here. Uh, the, the Ottoman you know, rejected the, the request uh, uh, because the, the work belonged to a, a private individual, uh, Abu Madian, so they didn't want to interfere with private issues. Eventually, we know that uh, benches were allowed to, to be put there for the Jews to pray. Now, throughout the 19th century, the wall eventually became the most evocative space in Jerusalem. 
more and more people began to pray around the wall, more travelers paid a visit to the area. And yet, we have to remember this is just a relic of, uh, uh, you know, of the ancient temple, uh, which many, you know, even contested, you know, was it close to the, uh, to the center, was it far? So a lot of issues, which I, I'm not going to debate because, I mean, they're even beyond my comprehension. Uh, but as I said, I, I like to think about the wall at the time as a lieu de memoir, as a symbolic element of a memorial heritage of the Jewish community. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there were a few attempts made by a number of individuals to buy either the wall or the area in front of the wall. The first that we know of is uh, uh, happened during the 1830s, during the Egyptian administration, uh, by um, an individual called Shemaria Luria, a wealthy Jew, who tried to bid the new administration, but it failed. Uh, in 1850s, we have a very interesting uh, individual, Abdullah Bombay, an uh, Indian Jew, who tried to purchase the wall. He apparently made a quite substantial offer, but this was rejected. Uh, we, all, we have, you know, <coughs> again, others uh, happening throughout the 19th century. Of course, Moses Montefiore uh, tried to purchase the area, but he was denied, so at least he tried to build a shelter, a protection for the worshipper, which was allowed for a period of time. Uh, you know, he basically was able to buy, I know that for us might sound silly, but at that time, and again, particularly if you're involved uh, in the uh, Holy Sepulchre, every single stone matters. So he was able to purchase the right to put a bench on a few uh, uh, stones in front of the Western Wall. Uh, again, that failed, and, you know, the Ottomans had to take it back because, interesting enough, Christians were not happy about it. This has nothing to do with Muslim-Jewish relations, but the Christians, you know, anti-Semitism, obviously running very deep around that time, uh, obviously they were not happy about the Jews being able to pray in front of the Western Wall. Uh, what is interesting, I found a you know, relevant amount of documents. In 1887, Mustafa Lusahini, uh, you know, member of a prominent Jerusalemite family, um, agreed in principle with uh, uh, Edmund Rothschild and Nisim Bakar to sell parts of a Madian Waqf, which included a number of Maghrebi houses in front of the wall. It, once again, the, the affair didn't go through, um, mainly because he, the Ottoman administration stopped uh, the, the sale. But there was an agreement in principle. Who, who was that? Sakakini? Uh, no, um, Mustafa Al-Husayni. Hussaini, yeah. yeah. Hussaini. Now, we know that there was another attempt between 1913 and 1914, and this was actually a major business which was conducted by the Anglo-Palestine Bank uh, and David Levantine himself with David Yellen. Uh, they literally went to the Ottoman administration and basically they, as Zionists they tried to purchase the war, which was not supported by the Zionist organization in Germany. This was a local attempt. This was a local, sort of, uh, if I can say that, a local Palestinian Zionist attempt. Nothing to do with the word uh, um, Zionist organization. Of course, the outbreak of the war stopped everything. And uh, we can certainly say that eventually the Jews up to this point were buyers only. What I'm going to do now is to challenge that because we have enough, basically the possibility to, you know, to buy that. Uh, but it didn't happen, as I said. Now, let me say a few things about the Western world from the other perspective because I think it's very, very important. Um, 
again, it really ties with what happened after 1929 and with some of the questions we may ask later about what if. Um, certainly Jewish interest in the war had a major impact and direct impact on how Muslims looked at the same site and prompted the development of a counter-narrative, celebrating, but in this case, the sanctity of Al-Burak. Now, I'm not going to go into the story, which we're all familiar with, the stories of the magic stallion being you know, tethered inside the, uh, you know, the other side of the wall, essentially. What is interesting, what I found out, is the transition of how Al-Burak, so the, 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 the tethering spot, has changed throughout the various decades. What I found was that essentially by the beginning of the 20th century, uh, this was identified with the small mosque Jamia al-Burak, and it was very well separated from the wall, but obviously by the beginning of the 21st century, that shifted location to correspond with the wall itself, making it again a, a, a sort of a, a point of frictions, where you know the, the two uh, sides are looking out, the same side contesting it. Uh, again, I, I'm not an expert. I'm just you know collecting material, bringing it in. I know there's a lot of religious issues involved, and I don't want to go and deal with that. But I found it very, very interesting how you know this shifted to basically uh, correspond to the Western Wall itself. Uh, what I found interesting again to support this point is that Aref al Aref, writing the detailed history of Jerusalem, in fact included the wall in the list of the Jewish holy places clearly separating the two of them. Um, Al-Burak was intended as part of the Maghrebi Madian Waqf, separated. 1914, the guidebook of uh, the Aram al-Sharif published in 1914, uh, again, considered the wall as separated. In fact, not as an Islamic holy place at all, not even the other side of the wall. So there's a clear separation between the two, which also tells me that in a sense it was easier for Jamal to make an offer because the area was part of a waqf, nearly impossible to sell, but not sacred. So he knew there would have been some complaints, but on the other hand Muslims couldn't have really complained because, you know, it's not sacred. So again, the distinction here is uh, uh, it's a matter of meters, but it's very, very important in terms of understanding of the, of the, of the place itself. Again, we know for a fact that over the centuries the uh, worship scene has underwent a lot of changes uh, about the appearance, disappearance, growth of decline, myths and stories, places. Uh, look at, you know, I, I was joking with my travel companion uh, this morning that, you know, every day you read on Aris how uh, archeo Israeli archaeologists are bringing to life new places confirming the Bible. And then you have the archaeologists in Tel Aviv say, no, 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 it's not really true. Uh, so, you know, constantly changes. So we have to deal with the fact that there's nothing static. And even though you have a status quo that is protecting uh, this idea of a static uh, you know, picture of Jerusalem, but things are constantly changing. And, and it's in this picture that we have to understand the offer made by Jamal Pasha, which I believe was somewhat revolutionary, in fact radical, the very fact to sell a wife and a religious endowment was a revolutionary uh, act. I mean, we know of other examples, and I found a few others, but this was in Jerusalem. It was not in some uh, important, but certainly secondary uh, you know, cities in Palestine or Syria or in Yemen or anybody, anywhere else. This was in Jerusalem, so he knew exactly what he was doing. 
Now, of course, uh, you know, uh, he knew that selling an Islamic property to, uh, to the Jewish community could have certainly had uh, dramatic consequences, yet he was willing to undertake the risk. And then I think this is, again, something we have to bear in mind in the ways in which we understand Jamal Pasha, uh, and particularly the relationship between Jamal Pasha and Zionism, which is a complicated one. Often, you know, we, we, I already challenged, tried to challenge that narrative. The two were <coughs> closer than we think. Uh, not to mention the fact that, uh, and I think I'm going to mention that later, Zionists during the war were deported. None of them were hanged, like it happened with Arab nationalists in Palestine and obviously in, in Lebanon. So, you know, we, we have to think about here the, the, the differences. Shukran. Uh, what, I think, what I think is very important to remember before we're going to start looking into the correspondence is that the Jamal Pasha made the offer to Albert Antebi. Albert Antebi was a Syrian of origin, Jew, an Ottoman Jew, an Ottomanist, in fact. He spoke Turkish, he spoke Arabic, Arabic was his first language, uh, he spoke French. He was like uh, this sort of, a, he was understood to be the universal represent, the consul representing all of the Jews in Palestine and Syria. So this was a cosmopolitan figure and an important one. Jamal Pasha did not make the offer to the Zionists directly, but to Albert Antebi. And this is a, obviously a, an important point. Albert Antebi was not a Zionist. And he died before probably becoming one, or accepting, fully accepting the, the discourse. So again, this is something I, I want to make clear, because Jamal Pasha did not go to uh, the, 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 you know, the Zionist office, or didn't get in touch with the Zionist organization in Istanbul, but he got in touch with Albert Antebi. So it, it's a completely different kind of character. Uh, there's not really much written about Antebi, and it's very unfortunate, because I think he's a very interesting character, someone who placed himself at the middle of, of a very important uh, era uh, where cosmopolitanism uh, was still very much alive in the area, uh, where the relationship between the communities were essentially represented by individuals like himself. <laughs> now, uh, can we move to the, uh, the other slide? Yes. The correspondence. Now, this is the juicy part. I was working on my new project, uh, which is a you know, new book on urban planning of Jerusalem under Ronald Storz in the 1920s. I'm sitting at the Zionist archives in, in Jerusalem. And here I have a file, Z3 slash 68. I don't really understand what that file is doing in that, but then I'll explain why it's there. And all of a sudden, it's a file in German, and it talks in about uh, the Western Wall. Now, my German is okay-ish. Uh, I couldn't understand everything, but when I start reading the, the Mauer, so the, the, the wall, I, what am I reading here? So sit down, try to translate it, and I said, okay, I never read anything this before. And the file is a, is a collection of a few letters, uh, correspondence between a number of individuals starting with a discussion of Jamal Pasha offered, quote, to dismantle the 30 houses of the Moroccans and that of a newly gained plaza, which would be as long as, as the so-called Western Wall, about 50 meters, and in depth, about 30 to 40 meters. 
10, 12 meters in front of the western wall could be, could be reserved solar life for the prayers of the Jewish people and the rest of the space could be turned into a public garden. You close your eyes, you think about what happened in 1967, there's no garden, there's a plaza, but essentially it's what happens. Demolition of the houses, space for the prayers, and then the rest, you know, public space. There are a few letters in other two files, but they're copies, so they're not, there's nothing more than that. I removed that from the article because I understood that was the conspiracy part theory. I asked the archivist to see who are the people that access the documents. The archivist was very nice, he understood that I was sitting on something, and then he, he told me the names, but he didn't give me the copy, so I can't prove it, but I can tell you. There's a bunch of scholars, Israeli, Zionists, Zionists in the sense that they belong to the old guard in the name of Isaiah Friedman, just to give a sense, who saw this file, but they never used it. Shoshana Levy is in the list, so she saw the file, uh, but again, no one used it. And that's the question, why, right? Why not uh, talking about this affair? And the correspondence somehow tells us why. Now, going back to the, to the business, Jamal Pasha asked for a massive amount of money, 20,000 Turkish lira. Now, I'm not really an Ottoman expert in finance, but we have a few here, I can tell you, it's a lot of money. So it also tells us that he knew Antebi was not able to collect the money. So he asked only 2,000 Turkish lira as a you know, good faith agreement, and the rest could have been paid later. Also tells us that he knew that this was going to become a Zionist affair. Where do the Jews get the money from? Not certainly from Palestine during the wartime. This was something that had to go through Istanbul, and the uh, Zionist office in Istanbul, and this is what happened. There is an old issue about who's going to own the Waqf. I'm not going to that, but it was obviously debated. Uh, apparently, uh, obviously, Antebi was not interested in becoming in a work owner. Possibly, Chaim Nahum, the Ambassador of, uh, so the, the chief rabbi in Istanbul, was the uh, figure that was somehow accepted by all of the people involved. So the chief rabbi in Istanbul would have been the owner of the wealth. The correspondence goes about for a year and a half. And uh, obviously, this was dis debated by a number of members in the Zionist organization, the so-called uh, Inner Actions Committee, you know, EAC in German, which I translated, you know, sort of this Inner Action Committee. I'm going to mention a few names, and, and they're important because one point that I want to make is that in this letter they swore to secrecy, and some of these individuals wrote diaries and memoirs, and they never mentioned what happened here, never despite they had the chance. And some of them, they later have been involved in the attempt purchase of the war later on with the British. But you know, they never mentioned this often. One individual that is never mentioned here, and I believe he, he had no idea of what was happening, was Chaim Weizmann. He was in Britain, in an enemy country. This was a German affair with an American extension. But Chaim Weizmann is never mentioned. Obviously, he's never anything is mentioned in his diaries and letters. And I believe this is a speculation that he simply didn't know. He might have been informed later, but he didn't say anything about it. Now, th there is an interesting exchange of letters, uh, very much about uh, money collection, but also about 
the value of the war. And this is an important element. Now, one of the key figures is Richard Lichtheim, who was the head of the Zionist organization in Istanbul. Lichtheim was a Zionist, but I must say he was like anti-clerical. He believed that the war was a Jewish symbol, but of degradation. And while he was not interested in purchasing the wall, of course, as a representative, he had to deal with it. But through the tones, through, you know, through the, the wordings of his letters, you can really perceive that he didn't give a damn to make it nice. He was like, okay, if we get the wall, great, but if we don't, it doesn't matter. Uh, but what is interesting is that obviously that triggered a major debate among different people. Now, Lichtam is also the first one, and I believe that he did that to uh, sort of slow down the process to uh, discuss who's going to own the war. Whereas other, particularly Jacobson uh, here in, in Palestine, um, and others, and particularly Arthur Rupin, were much more interested in the urgency of getting the money, get the business done. Let's buy it. He, Jamal Pasha offered it. We need to buy it now. It may change idea. So you can see different approaches to it, but also different, uh, which also shows the different understanding. People being on the ground and having a different understanding of Jamal Pasha against those who were sitting in Istanbul, who might have not perceived what was happening in Palestine and Syria at that time. You know. So, but that, that's another layer. It's another set of lenses through which we can understand this correspondence. What is interesting is the American extension. Where do you find the money? Europe was entrenched into the war uh, and the Zionist organization moved to Switzerland. There was some money available, but at this point, Victor Jacobson decided to write to Louis Brandeis. Louis Brandeis is, is going to become also another key figure as we discussed a couple of years ago when we discussed the Balfour Declaration, right? You know, he was involved into somehow convincing President Wilson. Now, Louis Brandeis was informed. He, was, uh, he replied that obviously he was very happy about it, and he had done his best to collect the money. Um, what is important is that the moment the circle began to be enlarged, secrecy became paramount. Quote, bring it to the public's attention under no, and it's, it's interesting how in the, the original letter is uh, uh, underlined several times, under no circumstances for the time being. There is a circle, they're debating what's going on, but no one in the public should be informed about it. So how do you collect the money? You can't tell people. So it was a rather complicated business, and I tried to use a I'm Italian. I, I tried to use the, um, one of the techniques used by the judges in Italy to uh, you know, fight mafia, follow the money. So I tried to follow the money, but up to a point. You know, the records tell me the money was found, the money reached Switzerland, then it disappeared somehow, probably in Russia. I, I, I couldn't find. But the money was found, and it was available. So obviously the money was collected. Now, we have a number of other figures that uh, um, are becoming part of the Western world affair, as I would call it. Uh, Leo Motzkin, um, you know, other representative of either the Yishuv or the uh, um, Zionist movement around the world. Some Russians were made part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have, you know, the circle it somehow enlarged itself because it was necessary to find the money, but also to understand whether 
this was uh, feasible and to what extent this would benefit the Zionist movement. And this is the other interesting part of the correspondence. Um, in, in May 1916, while the Jewish National Fund was involved through uh, Yechiel Chelenov, so uh, now this, this time a Russian Jew, um, and so some, you have somehow a competition between the Jewish National Fund and the Zionist organization, uh, essentially who should own the war, who should be the one to go out and say, we bought it, we saved the war, we made it like part of the, you know, the Zionist project. At the same time, you have internal debates. And, uh, and as I said, one of the most important voices was Richard Lichten, who essentially gathered and rallied a few other Zionists against it, trying to slow it down. Not saying that he didn't want to, but to create the conditions for which the whole business would eventually fail. Now, we don't really have an explanation of it. My own understanding of it is through reading the memoirs of Richard Lichten who was a strong secular Zionist who didn't believe in religious symbol as uh, you know, part of this nationalist revival. He changed the idea after 1929, but before that, it does represent a, another layer of the Zionist movement, those who certainly were not interested in this, you know, even Chaim Weizmann called them the, the old Jew, but they were interested in different kinds of symbols. You know, the, the, later on the building of Hebrew universities, the idea of the Alutzim, the pioneers, but not certainly, you know, the Western world we represented the old uh, Jewish, uh, you know, sort of, again, the, the, the diaspora, the, the poor Orthodox Jews, and so forth. As I said, uh, you know, we, we have a secret affair going on. There are rumors, and I couldn't find more material because the Ottoman archives to this extent are closed, that the vice president of the Ottoman parliament knew about it, and he disclosed that to the Judician Echo, a German-Jewish um, newspaper. I read the interview, and in fact, he's kind of mentioning that there's some stuff going on between the Zionist movement and Jamal Pasha. Yet, this is also another story that has to do, uh, and again, it's not a matter of expertise, of other affairs that I found in that letters, uh, other deals that were made between the Zionists and the Zionist movement. Likely, and I'm probably encroaching into the territories of uh, somebody else's research, of um, land that could have been purchased by the Zionists in different parts of the Ottoman Empire. So, but that's not clear, and I'm, I'm not going into that. Now, in a final letter, of July 3rd, 1916, we finally, or at least partially, uh, well, finally, in terms of like, we're we, we, we getting close to the end of the, the correspondence, but partially we get a revelation about uh, why secrecy was important. Uh, Brandeis, Jacobson, they all made it clear that they didn't want to cause local Arab unrest. They clearly say that they knew the local Palestinians, the Arabs, obviously this is the word used at the time, they would certainly have opposed such deal, therefore the deal should have remained secret. There is a clear understanding that buying the war would have created the conditions for strife. But yeah, this is wartime. We don't know to what extent. We don't know how the local population might have reacted. So, you know, this is like... Uh, 
uh, it's speculation. But obviously they understand that this was problematic. You don't simply buy, uh, you know, a war, the Western war, a religious relic, which also is in front of a, an Islamic waf. So th there, certainly there had been some consequences. Now, Jacobson um, also reported, and I think this is another, again, set of lenses to look at the correspondence, uh, he wrote to Brandeis, said that, look, Jamal, Jamal Pasha is unfriendly towards, uh, towards Zionism, but actually the relationship with Rupin is improving. So, you know, this also may mean that, you know, the, the Jewish community is going to be protected throughout the war. And again, as I said, certainly the Jewish community suffered alongside the, 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 the local Arabs, Christians, and Muslims, but we don't see any, uh, uh, you know, particularly like reprisal of Jamal Pasha against the Zionists, other than uh, deportation. Uh, so secrecy was a paramount concern. They didn't want also, and I think that to me is a secondary issue, or at least it's secondary in the, the bigger picture. Um, Jacobson was concerned that reporting this could have triggered, uh, you know, the, 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 the vendetta, really, he's using this word in, in German, uh, of Jamal Pasha against the Jews and the Zionists in Palestine. So, on one hand, secrecy in order to avoid clash with the Arabs. On the other hand, secrecy in order to avoid Jamal Pasha reprisal against the Zionists and the Jews. So, it had to be secret. End of story. July 1916 and the mark of, uh, marks the end of this affair. There are two letters here. Um, one is written by uh, Thorne, uh, who was a, you know, a local um, a Zionist representative here in Palestine. And on July 17, he wrote to Licktime, nothing can be done about the Wailing War. But not because of Jamal Pasha, because of Antebi. Antebi fell out of favor with Jamal Pasha and Antebi was no longer eager to enter negotiations with, uh, with uh, Jamal Pasha. In fact, Antebi, a few months later, was deported to, um, to Syria. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting there. Uh, they tried different ways, but eventually, uh, since Antebi was no longer available, uh, the whole affair simply collapsed. And I would say, to, to the, not to the great disappointment of many, uh, you know, reading the letter, you have some of those that are obviously disappointed, but other people like Lichtenstein, kind of happy that they had, that they didn't have to deal with the war with Jamal Pasha. Simply, the, aff the affairs disappeared. Now, what I found interesting is in in, in the final letter, uh, there is a revelation about why Jamal Pasha made the offer in the first place. Now, certainly for money, money was badly needed for the war effort, but here is is a very interesting uh, point. Apparently, Jamal Pasha made the offer in order to beautify the city. This is part of his uh, uh, general, uh, and I'm quoting here and translating from German, city beautification plans, uh, which we are well known. Jamal Pasha was involved in heavily uh, urban planning during the war, and essentially didn't like the, 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 the Maghreb neighborhood. So there was a way for him to get rid of something that he understood as neglected, poor, and dirty, which was a common image at the time of the, of the area. Uh, but as I said, for me, the main, uh, the main question is about money. 20,000 Turkish lira in 1916 would have made the difference in purchasing uh, resources badly needed for the Ottoman army, particularly here in Palestine. Now, 
the file ends abruptly. We don't know if any, uh, anything else had been written. I couldn't find anything else anywhere else. In fact. So we only know that eventually after 1916, with the liquidation of the Zionist leadership, they were exiled. Obviously, that affair would have been impossible. impossible. Certainly later on, 1920 and after 1929, all of the affair, uh, again, even more impossible, because as I said earlier, then we have somehow the, uh, you know, the appropriation of the war, uh, you know, the, the Al-Buraki's nationalist symbols, not just religious, but representing nationalist communities. Therefore, the only way for the Zionists to bring about the project of getting rid of the Moroccan houses and create a space for the Jews to pray was exactly what happened in 1967. Capturing the city and forcefully getting rid of the houses. Can I ask you to move? Now, I'm reaching some conclusion here. Uh, I just want to mention a few things about secrecy and failure. Yeah, yeah uh, s failure of the business is really, for me, an issue about not Albert and Tebi, but uh, about the understanding of the war. Uh, many in the Zionist circles didn't believe the war was uh, worth the purchase, but they believed in the war as a re symbol of redemption, something that you have to redeem. Besides, again, th this is an interesting point, you would have, uh, again, fostered the uh, anti-Semitic pictures of the Jews buying using money to buy. And this is something people like Lichten wanted to challenge. The, 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 the myth and uh, the, the picture of the pioneer, the, the Alutz, the someone goes and conquer, that redeems with the uh, uh, power of modernity, not with the money, not with in the, in the, in the wake of Montefiore of Russia, you go and buy. They wanted to challenge that view. And that's one of the reasons why that I believe it failed, not because of Antebi simply fell out of favor with, uh, with Jamal Pasha, that's a, that's a trigger, that's a practical way, but also because there was no full agreement on purchasing the wall itself. Now, uh, secrecy, obviously, is one of the most sort of interesting uh, outcomes of the exchange of letters. Again, obviously secrecy could have been easily justified throughout the war, considering the sensitivity of the matter, and the fact that the Zionists belonged to both sides of, 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 you know, of the actors involved in the war. You have Zionists on the British side, and of course many on the German side. So, you know, secrecy, I think it's, uh, it's relevant, uh, given the context. But for me, the more complicated issue is to explain the lack of any reference to this episode later on, after war. Why not discussing it? Why not, uh, uh, you know, particularly by those directly involved, showing that, look, Jamal Pasha tried to sell it, and we didn't buy it. And that's the problem. They didn't buy it. They had a chance, and they let it go. The British have arrived. We know for a fact that there was an attempt made by Chaim Weizmann, but it failed. And certainly after 1929, the argument was simply closed. There was no possibility even to sit down and see if there was any possibility to uh, maybe purchase a few houses or enlarge the area or anything like that. So obviously that was not an option. What I found interesting is that most of the people involved in, in the exchange of letters in 1916 were later on involved in the Zionist organization and movement here in Palestine for, throughout the British mandate. Some of them even survived to see the creation of the State of Israel, like Richard Lichtheim. When he wrote this memoir, which was published posthumously in 1970, Rucker, The Return, in German, 
the part dedicated to World War One is great. Any historian should use it for the details about what was happening, what happened to the Zionist movement, and yet this chapter is completely neglected. There's no mention whatsoever. Uh, there's no mention whatsoever in Arthur Zupin's memoirs, Dines and Letters, but he was directly involved. There's so many letters that are personal or minor affairs, but nothing. I couldn't find anything in the, in the uh, Louis Brandeis papers in America. There's no mention whatsoever. There's no record, in fact, that this that even was contacted by the Zionist. So what happens? Now, my point is that, again, I'm not questioning the, 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 the correspondence, but it's the historiographical production that I want to put under the spotlight here. And I can't really mention all of the works I looked at. But when I start looking at the works of a, a you know, sort of traditional Zionist historiography, either in Hebrew or in English, like Isaiah Friedman, then you get the sense of this sense of uh, redemption. I mean, the old labor uh, Zionist version of history is about redeeming, you know, the conquest, not about the purchase. And I'm not an expert of labor in Israeli labor history, but you can really feel it. So, obviously, secrecy has kind of been kept as a necessity out of the. Uh, the context that was developed throughout the mandate period because the same actors they were there and they were they had to justify themselves if were asked why not why didn't you buy it right because they might have been questioned you had the chance to buy it and you didn't no win situation you just don't talk about it and obviously later on you know it didn't fit the historiographical approach post-1948 well, you don't want to talk about purchasing something. You want to talk about redeeming, conquering. Certainly after 1967, that's the sort of, uh, uh, you know, historiographical approach, particularly related to, to Jerusalem and, and, and the Western War. Now, just to clarify, as I mentioned earlier, the, the erasure of Ottoman Palestine is not just an issue affecting the Zionist historiography. Salim, uh, you know, wrote extensively about the wars and anti-Ottoman rewriting of history that took place, quoting, hopefully, uh, properly, simultaneously, and in the same abrupt manner, both on the Turkish side and the Arab side. You know, the, the, the whole Ottoman history of Palestine is being rewritten now, but for decades it was simply gone. So, you know, that is another part to that the Ottoman archives and following are closed when it comes to Jamal Pasha, but it would be interesting to see what they have to say about that, and also to understand if there were any um, locals involved in this, and how they dealt with it, if they you know, have any chance to say anything. This is only one side of the coin. We don't know about the other side. Now, just to you know, really uh, conclude here, um, And I want to use, uh, uh, again, something that made me think a lot, uh, a letter that I found written in 1928. So the director of the Anglo-Palestine company, Eliezer Ufien, who was an associate of Thorn in Palestine during the war, wrote to Frederick Kish, which was the head of the Zionist Commission for Jerusalem region and a former British officer late in 1928, quote, the importance to the Zionist organization and for its present executive of scoring a success in this matter, the purchase of the war before the Western World Riots of 1929, quite apart from the historic uh, importance of the thing itself, 
Imagine what it will mean to have been the redeemer of the war. Now, ironically, Ufian was in Palestine, and he was part of a circle who knew exactly what happened. But, and that to me was like, uh, you know, the proof. Like, they knew, but they had to say nothing happened. Because, you know, he knew that, obviously, the days where they had these possibilities, uh, possibility were over, and they had a chance to become redeemers, but they failed to achieve that. Now, what if? These are the questions we should ask, right? What if uh, Jamal Pasha of... Uh, would have been successful. Would have, you know, would the current debates over the separation of sexes at the wall have been avoided? Uh, would the uh, incidents of 1929 in different forms and shape occur? Uh, would it have been the uh, the Maghrebi Muslims being expelled as it happened in 1967, or, or given houses to another part of Jerusalem? Would be the relationship between the communities in Jerusalem has been different than nowadays. Obviously, we don't know. But I think it's legitimate to ask questions, particularly when we face this juncture in history, when an offer was made and uh, individuals <coughs> made choices to take a different path. The agencies uh, you know, of, of, of the human beings uh, at work, they chose not to in front of a, of a possibility. Yet, of course, it didn't happen. Some may say it's irrelevant, but I still believe that uh, it was important. Now, what I conclude with is that I believe that events of 1967, as dramatic as they've been, they're certainly rooted in the past. Thorn, in one of his letters, wrote, quote, in normal times, one can definitely not clear them easily away, the Maghrebi houses. However, Right now, during the war, during the general demolition at the higher commands, without meticulous procedures, this is relatively easy in one workshop. Now, the archives are open, the documentation is available. What I believe is missing is good questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to open the floor for discussion. Uh, better in English. No, but they are going to ask questions and I'll translate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. I mean, absolutely. No, no, no. In that sense, yeah. Before I, I mean, open, I can understand, I but then I don't want to miss up anything. I want anything. you to reflect on one issue and then we can open up. Mm -hmm. The background of this, of course, is the zigzag relationship between Jamal Pasha and the Zionists. Mm -hmm. And this is the same period. Because uh, Jamal, I understand him, was very interested in not only modernity, but the German and Jewish contribution to the modernity of Palestine. He was, he was mesmerized by the, the German Templars. He <laughs> thought, in early period, he thought the Zionist uh, kibbutzim, uh, collective settlements, were going to be an agricultural factor in Palestine's modernity. So he was fascinated with this in the same way that Ruhi Khaldi was also uh, fascinated. At this time that you're talking about, uh, Jamal made a quick, began to reconsider his attitude to the Jews because of the Neely affair. The Neely affair was the discovery of a Jewish spying network 
in Zichron Yaakov, which made him rethink. And I wonder if this background is important to understand the, the sale and the, perhaps the hesitance about mm. the sale. And the second point is, this is Waqf territory. So they're not probably talking about sale of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall to the Jews, but of long-term rental. Uh, I'll go into that, I, yeah. wonder, I wonder if that appears in the scoop that you have found or not. Yeah. So before you answer, maybe do you want to, to reflect on this or shall we open it up? Let's, uh, open, let's open yeah, it up. Yeah, let's so open up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. These are okay. So, uh, uh, says George, I see your face wanting to say something. Of course. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have seen it, but uh, the information about now the there's a big difference between offer and agreed. I, uh, yes. It makes a big difference. I don't think that Jamal Pasha offered, but he agreed in the negotiations. Now, the information was passed to America through somebody, I'm sure you know, um, you know, Morgenthau. Yeah, absolutely. Morgenthau. Mor Morgenthau. Yeah, Morgenthau. Morgenthau. Yeah. Uh, it's not in his memoirs, but in his diary, published in 2004. He's mentioning that, I know. Yeah. So uh, he's, okay, as you know, Morgan Towers, anti-Zion, is not interested in all these things, but he agreed to pass the information to Brandeis yeah. and the rest. And all these figures, of course, are mentioned, 20,000 and yeah. Now, the Neely affair is at the end, just a few months before Jamal Pasha left. Yeah. So, so actually, I mean, Jamal Pasha's relationship uh, to Zionism and to Jews are two different things. I mean, he was against uh, any nationalist activity, whether it's Arab, Armenian, or uh, you know, as we say, Jewish. Uh, he was against the Russian, Jew, uh, Russian Jews. Absolutely. The issue was basically, I mean. Uh, uh, Russia and he looked at them as Russian agents. But in his daily dealings with the Sephardis, besides Antebe, he was he was I mean he had no specific attitude towards. And of course, this one has to look at this as a business deal. Now let me tell you. I mean, I've been to the Western Wall in 1962. Uh, I mean there was somebody from Switzerland who was interested and we asked, it was so humble the whole area and it was so narrow that we had to go 20 minutes through uh, hovels or what. And then it didn't impress anybody. I mean, it was such a humble and uh, you know neglected place. So I think in the mind of Jamal Pasha, perhaps in Istanbul, they, differently this was a neglected area and mm -hmm. it wouldn't so much evoke because we are talking uh, I mean uh, in the context of today when it's major symbol you know while for Jamal Pasha was here for one year or two years it didn't represent that symbolic power you know 
But as he says, when the deputy, you know, the deputy, yeah, yeah. <coughs> the parliament knows about it, so he didn't do it on his own. Uh, no, no. Uh, the initiative came from here, or the negotiations. But there is a big difference between offer or agreeing uh, for the purchase, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to tell you something. I translated the word from the German letter, which it's quoting Jamal Pasha. Obviously, you may have a point. I mean, again, we all know that the, 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 the archives of the 4th Army are closed in, in Istanbul, so we, we don't know what he may have used. He, uh, I'm pretty sure he left some records, because you know you don't go and ask make these kind of offers without leaving any record. But that's why I also want to make sure that I perused a number of diaries and memoirs of people around uh, Jamal Pasha, his secretary here, but there's no mention of it. So, and you know, they could have mentioned it, but we also know that the relationship with the Zionist movement was problematic. So, even from the Ottoman perspective, to make it public could have been problematic. Uh, and I agree with you, Morgantown is very interesting, but it doesn't really say that there was like a, the wall perch. In, in the data that was published, it just mentioned there was a transaction between Jamal Pasha and, and the Zionists, but it doesn't say what. I, I infer too that he's talking about it, because it's quite obvious. It's very, yeah. it's a big paragraph. He talks about it, but without really giving details. But yeah, he says, uh, I was asked to pass... To pass a message, yeah. To pass the message, yeah. I, I want to go back quickly, since I have the time to think about a couple of things that Salim, Salim mentioned. And, uh, yes, I, I agree with you that uh, Jamal Pasha was in love with modernity. I mean, of the old Jamal Pasha boulevards, you know, whether in Jaffa, whether here in Jerusalem. And, and, and I believe... The, and I agree with you, George. I, I think getting rid of the Mag Maghrebi houses, Moroccan houses, was really a point for him, for someone coming from Istanbul. Let's get rid of them. You know, let's build something modern. And uh, and again, in the wake of, uh, he was suddenly in love with the German buildings in the German colony, Rinaifa, we highly praised. So I don't see any. Problem here. I mean, I don't think he really thought about carefully about it. Symbolism, no. No, absolutely. It was a practical issue, which also takes me to the point of a walk. Now, this was debated in at least five or six letters, because obviously Lichtenstein goes into the first question. He's a, he's a legal advisor and says it's what we don't really own it. But apparently, and again, I wish this is a speculation. It's I need to fill the gap. I can't access the, the Ottoman material. But apparently in the offer made to Antebi, or the agreement, we're talking about ownership. Transfer of what? And that's why the, the, the what was offered to uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the the chief rabbi in Istanbul, because it had to be a religious figure. And, uh, and I think this is very interesting. Again, in the modernity of Jamal Pasha, he was not really interested in the what properties. Something that I think predates the nationalization of, like you have in Egypt under Nasser. I mean, properties were simply nationalized without thinking too much about the symbolism attached to it. Uh, but I think that that's a. V I, I try to steer from it because I know it's a big question. You know, how do you answer to that? I mean, it's it's what property. But he was more interested outside the walls. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, and this is 1960. Don't have any evidence that he. Proposed or anything, except setting up a museum. Yeah, 
basically. But the museum, the intention of the museum was collecting all the collections of all the institutions to make a museum. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you promised not to let me know any part about this on the way here, and I'm just thrilled by this. Um, I, I'm, I'm coming from a little different, from the 1911 Haram al Sharif incident that I wrote about the archae archaeological dig that took place in 1911 there, where Palestinians got really upset when people touched it. I think they would, I think the area, the region right around there would explode if this got out. It would explode because by 1914 you have numerous uh, poems, numerous, you know, uh, plans to purchase land in the name of Palestinian people. This is my upcoming book. In the name, exactly, exactly that. I think, I think it would be, I think it would be huge actually, uh, and it would recreate the feeling that they had in 1911. I mean, that, that's, 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 that's one thing. I think that's the, the, the secrecy of it. The, the second thing would be, I think when you, re, you really need to think of about Albert Entebbe, mm. Albert Entebbe is always described as an anti-Zionist. He always worked as a mediator between Zionists and the local uh, communities. He lost the election to Raghav Nashashibi in 1913, yeah. left disgruntled and claimed that they were anti-Semitic. Nashashibi was anti-Semitic, Raghav himself. And that's why he lost elections. Um, he was a, always seen as the, the true Ottomanist, but only writes in French. He doesn't write in Ottoman language, sure. um, compared to other Ottomans. The last thing I would, I would look at is with Jamal in the war years is that uh, not just local Sephardis, it's actually, actually uh, Ashkenazis that are fighting in the war. Karmi Eisenberg, I talked about, Moshe Shred is in the army during this period. Um, so they're actually fighting with the Ottomans. I think to understand Jamal's point, and I, and I completely agree with this idea about um, uh, the Russians and, and stuff like that, but I think you need to, it, it wasn't with the local population actually. It was with, it was with, Ashkenazis also fighting Zionists, okay, hmm. that are saying we want a homeland here, but not an independent state, yeah, which Chaim yeah, Nakhum supports, the Chaham Basha, yeah. supports this idea of a Jewish autonomous home, homeland there, um, who he is very close to the CUP. Now remember, I'll end by saying that the 1911 Haram dig was done all in the parliament with the, with the, with everyone in the parliament. It's the people here that never knew about it. There was never a mediator here. It was always done through the Ottomans and through international dealings and stuff like that. So I think if we put this into this, it, 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 it's almost a very nice continuation of that part. That's my book now, but that was my article before, that, um, of, of this idea that they are able to, to sell it. Um, and to sell very big pieces of land in 1913, apparently, Talat Pasha also offered to sell parts of Palestine uh, in 1913. And there's a lot of these deals that the Zionist organization is very uneasy with this sometimes. Yeah. Local, local Jewish Zionists are very promoting these ideas. The Zionist organization in Berlin is quite uneasy with this. And with, yeah. like, it sounds like the time also. Uh, I just want to mention briefly that actually, you know, I didn't read the whole thing, but. Uh, you're, you're quoted here by 1911 because it's exactly my point. Where 1911 showed that you know there was attrition over the you know the dig, the possibility you know of sort of a breaking the status quo. My point here was that I didn't go through it, but 
I don't know, I have a sense that had this happened in 1916, eventually the people had just to simply accept fair complete. It just happened. I mean, you're under military administration, scarcity of food, lots of men are actually recruited by out of here. You can't really stage any rebellion or anything. I mean, you could, but is that going to work? You have a, a militarized city, basically. So, but which also translates, if you look into uh, Isan Turjman, but also other, you know, sort of, they all somehow start criticizing more or less at the same time the Ottoman administration, right? So, there was awareness of something that was not working properly, but you don't find any sort of a counter, you know, action. I'm not. I'm not arguing that people were fatalists, but it's war time. The press, team, the press is closed during this period. Absolutely, there's no information going around. Yeah, even though up to a point. Not about the information about testing. Yeah, yeah testing the waters. 1911, it's yeah. a big case. 1916. I mean, you have uh, people starving. This is just the end of uh, the locust invasion. Exactly. Uh, you know, I think even for Jamal Pasha, it would have been like, yeah, we need the money. You're upset? Deal with it. Uh, I know it's very cynical, but if you think about the context, you know, you, you may end up thinking, well, yeah, true. Not great, <laughs> but could have happened. Okay. Um, shall we have another input? Please. Uh, while we're waiting, uh, I wanted to ask you something more uh, on the gossipy side. Uh -huh, gossip, yeah. Uh, this is the same period when it was rumored that uh, Leah Tannenbaum was the mistress of uh, Jamal Pasha, and she was a close associate of Antebi. So I wonder if sex was a factor in this transaction. <laughs> I'd love to know. Now, my, my soul tells me that uh, yes, because we, you have to know that me and Salim have been fascinated by this figure for years. And the only thing, you know, you can find information about Leah Tenenbaum, but it's very superficial. Like, obviously, she fell in love with a British official. Mm -hmm. Eventually, if you go to uh, West Jerusalem, you will find Villa Lea. Uh, exactly, because she married eventually this Greek, Greek. well, it was Egyptian, Greek Orthodox lawyer that came over. The, the house is dedicated to her, and in the new project, I'm actually writing about the villa because it's interesting. This is a villa that then um, was inhabited by um, the king of Ethiopia when the Italians invaded, and then Moshe Dayan lived there. So it's like, this house must be haunted. Yeah. Mm. But she's an interesting character. She had... Uh, I hate this because I know it's going to be sexist, but she really had power over men. And you have a point. She was, you know, the gossip around the city was massive. I mean, we know from different sources that people rumored about uh, the affair between Jamal Pasha. We never denied it. Never. He only denied that they were married. Uh, I don't think it had an impact directly, but the fact that, again, she was an associate of Antebi, maybe connections, networking. I mean, we do it in the 21st century. There's, there's no conspiracy theory. It's just old-fashioned networking. You know someone, can you please introduce me? Or can you open the door for me, right? Weizmann did the same in Britain through, you know, C.P. Scott and other people. So there's, there's, that's why, again, I was criticized for conspiracy theory, but I'm like, no, wait a second. There's a big difference between a conspiracy theory and a network of people who are 
in a small, relatively small city, and they all end up knowing each other. Because that's, that's the reality. All of these people, elites, they met regularly on you know regular basis in a number of venues. We know from Wasif Juaria, we know from my Spanish consul, we know from a lot of other individuals. Mm. So yes, maybe it's a factor. Yeah. Why not? Mm -hmm. Again, please give work. No, yes. Just, uh. Trying to get the benefit of his research. Uh, about sex we are not talking, we know all about it. Uh, we do? <laughs> Speak for yourself. The parties, yeah. the one Pasha attended, or, you know. But now, what's your uh, overall, I mean, impression of the career of Jamal Pasha? Uh, I think my part of the research and the people who knew him personally, uh, he was not a corrupt person. And this, and this is of course the question mark now. Anti-corrupt. Anti-corrupt. He was, he was, from all accounts. I mean, I've never seen anywhere people who dealt with him, you know, that okay, the system perhaps was organized, so organized that he didn't tip his hand. I mean, he didn't need to tip his hand, you know. Benefits came to him, but uh, he, so you, you mean he was anti-corrupt? No, yes, he was very strict with corruption. I mean, yeah. and yeah. there was a class of many Turkish officers and key officers like uh, Rauschenbeck or oh, yeah, yeah. Pasha Kutchuk. I mean, he he surrounded himself with people who are anti-corruption. I mean, okay, during the war. All kinds of things happen, but but he was personally not involved, and a circle of people around him. I'm not talking about his cruelties, you know, etc. Now the question is, if he can, there is no massive evidence. For example, Ember was corrupt. Let's say, mm -hmm. I mean, Talat was not corrupt. You know, he was a patriot. Uh, so now. Uh, this shows that personal benefit, I mean, in this deal, it's one of the deals he made, I mean, uh, perhaps was not involved. It was a bigger thing or, yeah. uh, you know, so now everything depends how much he had communication with the, with the center and we don't know that. We don't know. And, and, and I agree with you. I mean, he asked for a lot of money. He asked obviously for a small payment. My impression is that, again, you're right, if, if you are a corrupted person, you don't ask for so much money. It's too much. Yeah, but there is no secret in No, and, uh, and it's the end of 1915, we're moving into 1916, things start changing, the, uh, the um, Sinai campaigns and the Swiss campaigns are basically failing. Uh, there's need of money. So and I think it was a patriot in that sense. This was a pure financial business. Plus his own interest about you know becoming the other thing which is usually discussed and I happen to meet somebody from Paris who is a Kurd let's say but a major uh, historian because the Kurd had access to the Ottoman archives before the Kurdish affairs mm. because they have their own thing uh, we usually know that Jamal wanted to get rid of the Jewish uh, population let's say. You know, now 
they have found out that Talat, usually Talat stopped it, blocked it. Talat and the Germans. I mean, this was, I mean, a German was going in that direction or about to go, and there was suspicion. So Berlin, Berlin uh, influenced Talat, and they blocked any, any intention of, you know. Now there is new evidence that there are 15 times request of Jamal to to exile the Jews from the country, I mean, or the Yishuv. The last two correspondence of Talat and Jamal is, okay, Talat's argument was, okay, I agree with you, but it's not the time yet. Mm. And the last two uh, correspondences are that Talat says, okay, now you can do it if you want to. So this is not, I'm not talking about, this a major historian, Kurdish historian, and they had access to the Turkish archives. So it's, it was valid, the blocking was valid, but Talat and Jamal at one point were of the mind, of the same mind, but when it was timing. I didn't yeah. see the documents, but... Yeah, I think, again, it's an issue with the documents. You know, it's IKEA. But yeah, the documents... You know, the documents, it's sort of rumored now, one scholar, that there's a whole document on the Ottoman Zionist relations that was taken out of the archives. I mean, I did all the documents on Zionism in the Ottoman archives, found very little stuff. And now someone's saying, I can get his name, saying that they believe that the whole section was taken out. Is this Talat? No, a special file with Zionist Ottoman relations. In 1982, in 1982, it was purged, but the Kurds have entered the archive okay. in the in uh -huh. the 60s already. So that that, that I mean, when everything was. I, I'm a living with you. I I I mean, yeah. you know. Okay, well, thank you very much no for this lovely evening. Thank you.